Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my habit-inventing friend, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about the challenge of having causal indicators of factors within an analytical framework that is historically dominated by effect indicators and latent variables, and the absolutely critical importance of getting your arrows right. Along the way, we also mention self-help books, habits, Hagrid and the Giants, When Arrows Attack, The Handbook of SEM, it has all the top authors in it, The Evil Eye Factor, Defining Your Terms, The Meaning of Is, Minority Reports, Putting Your Fist Through Your Office Wall, Lawyering, Being Deposed, How Does It Know, Doubling Down, and JFK Impressions. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Are you a self-help book kind of guy? (laughs) I suspect I know the answer to this question because a self-help book would imply that you want to improve yourself for others around you. And I feel like you and I are pretty happy with just exactly how we are. (laughs) But the question stands. I don't don't know how to take any of that that you just said. Well, there's a book on that if you would like some insight. I will tell you there have been periods in my life where I hoped that maybe there would be some useful kernel of advice in something. I did listen to a lot of what were then books on tape, and some of them included that kind of stuff, but not as much lately. I have not. I've never read a single self-help book in my life. But I've got a good buddy of mine who is addicted to them. And he reads and reads and he has bookshelves of self-improvement, self-help, how to be a better person. But we're at a dinner party and I'm talking with him and I've got a glass of club soda. And he was like, well, do you want me to get you a beer? And I said, no, I don't drink. Mm-hmm. He said, Really? The number of people that express shock (laughs) about that. But you get that because you don't drink either. That's true. Which maybe explains why you're my only friend. (laughs) But anyway, he said, well, why is that? Why do you not drink? And what's really funny is I haven't for years. And this has been a source of endless entertainment for me. Because almost to a person when this comes up, they expect some rock bottom story. Mm -hmm. But what happened was I was doing martial arts. I got injured. I had to get a surgery. It took me nine months to recover. I put on 10 or 15 pounds during the time. I wanted to get back to my fighting weight. And so I just started thinking about how to cut calories. I love beer. I would drink beer. They're empty calories and carbs. It was an easy way to lower caloric intake. So I stopped drinking while training. And then I just never got back to it. And I told a little bit of this to my buddy. And he said, well, why is that? Why didn't you go back? And I went on for several minutes about how, well, it's just easier. If I go into a situation, I don't have to make a decision. Right. So you're at a dinner party. Is this a drinking situation or not? Are other people drinking? You have one drink. Do you have a second drink? Are people having a second drink? Are you driving? Are your kids in the car? There's this constellation of decisions you have to make. And I said, when I walked into this room, I don't have to make any of those decisions because I have decided going into it that I'm not going to have a drink. And there's this long pause. And he said, so it's a habit. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's it. Exactly. And he went on to point out that I organically invented what a habit was. And it's really funny because I never thought about it. A habit is something you do so that you don't have to make a decision in a particular situation. So as you're fully aware is I have running day. And if you don't run on running day, then you don't have a running day. That's right. You don't have to decide if it's too hot, too cold, too dry, too wet. Shut the hell up, put your shoes on and get out of the house. It just simplifies things. It takes all the decision making 
taking out. Yesterday was running day, and at no point during the day did I think, I wonder if I'm going to go out this afternoon. I didn't have to think about it. As a parent, as our kids are growing up, we give them all of these simplifying rules that's simplifying for them, but it's really simplifying for us, right? When we say something like, never talk to strangers, of course there are times when it's okay to talk to someone. And frankly, it's probably okay most of the time to talk to strangers, but it's just simplifying for us. It makes us maybe not have to worry about things. When you tell your kid, never lie. That's grossly simplifying behavior, and it seems like a really good one until you're visiting some older relative and your kid says, you smell funny. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, Tate said that to me last time I was there. (laughs) We told him not to lie. (laughs) You know that I like Harry Potter. There's this great line by Hagrid that feels on point for me. In book five, Hagrid doesn't even appear till much later in the book because he's been up in the mountains really trying to feel out whether or not they can get the giants on their side. And there was one particular giant who was in charge, but he wasn't a very smart guy. And what Hagrid said about that giant, you overload them with information and they'll kill you just to simplify things. I've had chairs of my department that could fall under that description. Right? Sometimes it's just like, it would be easier to kill you. (laughs) But I think that's sort of what we're talking about with regard to, you know, life. But also we do that in quantitative methods, too. We make things simpler than they actually are just so we can have a habit. All the time. Yeah. What I find tricky in quant methods is we have to hold two things simultaneously. One is maybe a less effective use of habits in that we don't have to deal with something more complicated that we probably should. That's right. If we just assume it's a continuous outcome and rock back and forth and say it's a continuous outcome when it's not, is we don't have to deal with all the complexities of a discrete outcome. Great. You're volitionally and willfully ignorant, and that actually got me all the way through full professor, so I am not (laughs) knocking that. At the same time, we've talked a lot about, over a lot of episodes, picking your battles. Yeah. Sometimes we can't afford the model that we want, or sometimes we're going to concede a battle on one front so that we can wage a stronger battle on another front. But I see those as different things, because I see that not as a habit, as I see that as we're making an informed decision that, look, I really would like a multiple indicator latent factor for my constructs, but I have 10 repeated measures and two constructs, and I can't do that. So I'm going to make some kind of linear composite. Mm -hmm. What worries me is what are things that are habits that maybe shouldn't be in quant methods? The biggest one for me is what you're dancing around right now. That has to do with the models that we have where we're trying to introduce latent variables, right? Some of the things that you describe, if you take a composite of things rather than trying to do a more complicated model, some of the payment that you make to the reaper is something you decide you can live with. You might say, okay, the relations I'm going to find might be a little bit dampened. I know that. I can take that hit. But there are other things that we do that are just so freaking wrong and so freaking consequential, but we're so steeped in the habit that we we have, we don't even think about what those potential consequences are. And the latent variable one for me is huge. We train people in factor analytic models, in confirmatory factor analysis, in item response theory, in classical test theory. And damn it, the arrows are always drawn going from the circle to the variables. 
that's potentially really problematic. A large part of that is on us. We often teach that. We're going to call those effect indicators. That is, the Mm -hmm. indicators exist because of the underlying latent factor. And we teach that modeling framework, but then the semester runs out, we had a snow day, and we lost a (laughs) lecture. And we forget to talk about alternative structures. But also, we get really excited about the effect indicators because of how many situations they work really, really well. We have a set of items on a math test, and the probability of getting them correct is in part a function of underlying latent math ability. Well, that's the item response theory model. We have a set of symptomatology items about how sad are you, how lonely are you, how hopeless do you feel, where the reason that they correlate with one another at the item level is because they share this underlying latent depressive symptomatology, right? That's Mm -hmm. factor analysis, exploratory factor analysis, confirmatory factor analysis. And we can say with a lot of enthusiasm, a one unit increase on the latent variable is associated with a lambda unit increase in the expected outcome of your set of items. And we talked about this in a prior episode, separating the common factor from the specific factor Mm -hmm. is the common factor is an underlying cause. And we have to really think clearly about what does it mean when that underlying factor causes the items. And again, these are not deterministic. These are probabilistic. They're expected values. On average, you are expected to have a higher probability of getting item five correct if you are higher on the underlying latent math ability factor. To me, there's a double-barreled shotgun. One is really doubling down on that causal interpretation that those factor loadings represent the weighted contribution of the underlying latent factor on the item response. But the other barrel of the shotgun is, well, does that apply to all kinds of items? Because that starts sounding like a habit to me. A number of years ago, I edited along with a good friend of mine, Ralph Mueller, a book called Structural Equation Modeling, A Second Course. That book preceded something edited by Rick Hoyle called The Handbook of Structural Equation Modeling that has just really everybody. Everybody, every leader, every every (laughs) major leader in the field contributed to that. Except... What was your chapter on? I'm trying to remember. (laughs) My chapter is on, nobody wants to play with me and I'm just staying home. (laughs) What if it makes you feel any better? My wonderful student E has a first author chapter. (laughs) (laughs) So your graduate student contributed to the volume. (laughs) Anyway, in the earlier volume that I did with Mueller, we had a chapter that was meant to talk about the relation between the measured variables that we had at hand and the hypothetical constructs that we were really interested in. The chapter had some very formal title. It was by Rex Klein, who did a wonderful job. The code name for this chapter was When Arrows Attack. (laughs) Because we are accountable for everything we draw on the whiteboard. It doesn't mean it's going to be right, but we have to bring all of our best thinking to bear. And we have habits of drawing things a certain way. 
it's really on us that whenever we draw one of these arrows between a variable and a construct, that we're accountable for the direction that we put there. And too often, I think we just default to a particular way that may not have any resemblance to what's really going on. Think about in your own work out there as you're listening, things that naturally are effect indicators. Mm -hmm. That is that we can really think about that some part of the response is due to the underlying latent variable. Mm -hmm. Depression, anxiety, social withdrawal, reading ability, math ability, self-esteem. When you think about what is a latent variable, what is a construct, and you say, well, happiness. I think that there's individual variability and latent happiness. And we say, outstanding. I can't look at a person and see that true happiness, but I can ask 10 items that I would think are, and this is the operative term, are reflective of that underlying construct. That is Mm -hmm. that someone who is higher on happiness smiles more. They appear to have more energy. They're engaging, whatever it would be. Make up your own happiness scale. Those are those effect indicators. They are a function of the underlying latent variable. All right, but now start thinking about, say, uncontrollable stressful events. Mm. So I was in grad school, I was doing some latent variable modeling, I had an uncontrollable life stressful event scale, which was at the level of the child, and it was just things that happened to the child that were stressful, that were completely beyond their control. Mm -hmm. And it was really like a checklist. Did this happen? Did this happen? Did this happen? Did this happen? And I was super proud to have it as a multiple indicator latent factor in the usual way. And my good friend Lily Lengua, who is now at the University of Washington, Mm -hmm. is first generation Italian. And she said, oh, so you estimated an evil eye factor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That somehow there's individual variability on the propensity to be cursed. And a one unit increase on the evil eye factor is associated with a lambda unit increase on your cat running away, your dad losing his job, your favorite toy breaking. I had this long pause and my only reaction was, well, Yeah. So someone said to me that they were interested in this construct of stress. And I'm using the word construct very deliberately because I don't want to pigeonhole it one way or another. If someone said they're interested in stress, I believe in stress. Whatever it is, I believe that there is this entity called stress. But if you tell me that, you know, dad losing the job, cat dying, whatever other things are happening to these kids are indicators of stress, that makes no sense in an effect indicator way. As you're saying, right, that we don't look inside the kid and say, oh, what's your stress level? And that made your dad lose his job. That made your cat die. On the other hand, I do think that there are manifestations of stress. There might be physiological manifestations, heartbeat things, whatever health-related things. There might be cognitive manifestations of stress. There might be behavioral manifestations such that, in fact, if someone is more stressed, that leads to other things. So first and foremost, when you bring up stress, I believe in stress as an entity. I do think it's a thing. But how we model it really has to take into account the nature of the relation that we have with the variables. And in your case, when you turn those arrows around the other way, that's what made it the evil eye, right? Exactly. It doesn't even make sense that there would be an underlying common cause to a set of, by definition, (laughs) uncorrelated (laughs) and random events. A lot of this work comes out of the field of sociology. It was initially by a guy... Blaylock, 
who was at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Yeah. And it goes back into the 1960s. And I actually have a lot of pride in Carolina because hoteling was there on principal components. Thurstone was there working on yeah. common factor models. Holzinger and Swineford were here in Department of Psychology and, and with Ed at the time. And so Blaylock was a sociologist, but a great example, I think, of socioeconomic status. Absolutely. All of us can agree on the definition of a construct. This is another thing I love kind of getting from my dad, who was the high school history teacher, of saying, define your terms. My dad would be just so clear about that. Define your terms. All right, Mm -hmm. we have to define what is a construct, what is a measure of that construct. A construct is there is person-to-person and family-to-family variability in what is called socioeconomic status. All right, and there are different dimensions to this. People have dedicated their entire career to this. Back in the day, it used to just be, oh, how much money do you make? And then like any onion that we peel in this field is... It's like, well, wait, is it just really how much money you make? What about years of education? What about the prestige of your job? Mm-hmm. What about your family wealth, right? That's a big issue, especially when studying subgroup differences in economic disparity is family wealth. What did you inherit when your mom died? Do you own a house? There are all these things. But for years, people would say, oh, I learned this really cool new thing with confirmatory factor analysis, and I've got years of education, and I've got the square footage of a house and the prestige of your job and how much savings you have in the bank. And those are effect indicators on this underlying factor of socioeconomic status. And I say, okay, I don't say it. Blaylock says, Mm -hmm. okay, so you're telling me a one unit increase on latent socioeconomic status leads to a causal lambda unit increase in how long you went to college, right? in how big your house is in how much your parents saved to give you on their death, it makes no conceptual sense. We haven't even written an equation. And you lean back and you say what I said when Lily talked to me, which was, well, and you can just go through decades worth of research and see, even by very prominent people in our field, that indicators of socioeconomic status are modeled as a latent variable kind of system. It may well be the case that income and occupational prestige and level of education, it may be the case that those things are related to each other, but socioeconomic status is not the reason that they're related to each other. It's a fundamental mismatch between what we're trying to get at as a construct and the way that construct might manifest itself. And that brings us to a fascinating body of literature. I love this because it makes you think Right, going back to my dad is define your terms. Mm -hmm. What is a construct? What is measurement? What is an item? What is a latent variable? So, what we're going into is this literature dedicated to distinguishing between effect indicators, which we're talking about so far, depression, happiness, mathematical ability, and causal indicators. That is, your items that you have are not in part due to some underlying shared common factor. Mm -hmm. We're going to flip those arrows around. And I don't mean that conceptually. I mean that literally. Flip those factor-loading variables around and say, no, no, no. Your four measures of socioeconomic status are not due to underlying socioeconomic status on a latent variable model. Your four indicators induce it. It causes it. 
It creates it, right? They are causal. And everybody I've ever talked to leans back and says, you're damn right. Yes, that's exactly right. I totally get that. And then there's a pause and they say, isn't that model unidentified? (laughs) And we say, "Uh, sorry, I got to take this call. I'll be back in a second. (laughs) I'm going through a tunnel. This idea that the arrows go the other way, first of all, makes total sense in the case that we're talking about. Second of all, if we get that wrong, then everything else we connect to socioeconomic status, identified or not identified, everything else we connect to it, we could be getting a completely inaccurate representation of what's going on. Think about stress. If you had indicators of stress that were what we had called effect indicators, like cognitive symptoms and behavioral and physiological symptoms of stress, I would feel very comfortable in using those as effect indicators of a latent variable stress. And then if I wanted to use that latent variable stress as a predictor of other things, I'd feel okay doing that. If I had if I had my cat dying and my dad losing his job and I had stress at work and I used those as effect indicators of something, first of all, I don't even know why the heck those things would be related to each other. But second of all, if I took that thing and used it as a predictor of other... I, I have no freaking idea of what's going on there. So we have to get this right. We have to ask ourselves about the relationship. And in many cases, like SES, like stress, possibly, depending on the indicators that you have, we should consider moving over to this cause indicator world. And there's a lot of language in what Patrick is moving us toward. It takes a while to sort out. And I would say even the literature, and honestly, even I'm not even consistent sometimes in how I use it. We typically model things. We habitually model things as effect indicators. What we're talking about now are cause indicators, whereas we historically talk about what are reflective systems, right, where those effect indicators are reflective of some underlying thing. We're now talking about what could be called formative systems, where the variables are somehow coming together, whatever that means, to form a construct. We're very accustomed to using the term latent variable in reference to the system where there's that underlying factor that influences causally the effect indicators. The world we're moving into now is sometimes referred to as having an emergent construct. It emerges from the cause indicators. So there's a whole language that we have to keep straight, and they reflect an underlying theory that we have to keep straight. To add insult to injury, different authors use different (laughs) definitions of every single thing you said. Uh, Even measurement. Even measurement. What is a measure? Yeah. (laughs) It's like good old Bill Clinton, right? This predates the majority of our audience. But what was his quote? It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yeah. (laughs) Remember the good old days? Like, that was the political chaos was how do you define the word is? Yeah. Man, I'd cut a check to return those halcyon days. (laughs) There is literally differences in how you define what is a measure, what is a construct, what is an effect. I think we do a lot of disservice to grad students. Very often, students are told to go back to first principles in reading. So if you're interested in growth modeling, it's like, okay, go back and read David Ragosa. He has an early 80s mm-hmm. paper that lays this out. And Tuckerizing Curves, right, as Tucker had a 1950s paper. And there's something really nice about that is go back and read the seminal pieces and bring yourself forward. That is completely back <laughs> It is. If you're a student... <laughs> 
and you're orienting to a literature and you want to understand about growth curve modeling is don't read Tucker 1952. All right. Find the most recent paper that you can find on the topic and work your way backwards. We can do that here. There is a plethora of papers in this field, and it goes back 60 years. Again, Blaylock. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't like, you know, Spearman who invented factor analysis in a note to a table, which he really did. 1904, factor analysis was a note (laughs) that appended a table. Uh All right, as Blaylock didn't just say in passing evil eye. (laughs) I mean, he wrote multiple papers on this in the 60s. All right. So we're talking 60 plus years. There have been, I didn't do a lit review, a comprehensive one. There are dozens of papers in this field. And some are really, really good. A lot of them are really, really good. Although I think there's a lot of cross-talking in the conversation. Some people are pro, some people are anti, but there's a lot of not misdefinitions, but not shared definitions. Mm -hmm. In the spirit of looking at the most recent work in this area. We're going to talk a little bit next about a paper that was written by Ken Bolin, and I apologize in advance for a mispronunciation of a name, but Adamantios Diamantopoulos, and it is in 2017 in Psychological Methods. I love the titles of Ken's papers, In Defense of Causal Formative Indicators, a Minority Report. I believe that anybody who does latent variable modeling, not just causal indicators, but if you have a running day on multiple (laughs) indicator latent factors and you run on running day because you don't have a running day if you don't run on running day, Mm -hmm. I think anybody working in multiple indicator latent factors should look at this paper and then the associated literature that it references. This does not presuppose that there have been some really important work done in other areas, both for and against using these kinds of models in practice. Before I go into talking about the paper, I want to have a conflict of interest statement. Ken and I go back almost 30 years. We have had grants together. We have published papers together. And indeed, if I lean back, I could put my fist through my office wall and grab him by the throat if he happens to be leaning up against the wall in a particular way. We'll wait. Go we ahead. have adjacent we'll... <laughs> offices. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about his work, but I unabashedly consider Ken a personal friend. And I also, from a professional standpoint, think he's one of the most important living quantitative methodologists that's working in the area right now. So that said... That doesn't take away at all from the other people who have contributed to this. I think very highly of Jeff Edwards, Denny Borzaboom. There have been a lot of really important people who have done that. But what Ken does is summarizes all the critiques that have almost ever been leveled at causal formative indicators. He has a table that he labels. There's seven of them. We're not going to read you the paper. We'll excerpt some stuff. We'll put this in the show notes. And again, we highly recommend you look at this, even if you don't intend to do it, because it lets you know what the issues are and what the concerns are. Also, you know what I love is we've talked about his work before. He's just a brilliant writer. Oh, yeah. His opening line to the paper is new and unconventional ideas typically elicit backlash. <laughs> I tell my students, write an opener that is going to set a hook to pull the reader into your paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got me there. It's like, ooh, this should be interesting. <laughs> 
I would actually like you to tell us what some of the main criticisms are in this area, because I totally agree that is a really important paper. I think it does a really thorough job of synthesizing what had gone on in the past, what the main criticisms are, but a lot of the inconsistency, honestly, among the ways people express those criticisms. Would it be okay to ask you just to go through those quickly for us? Looking across the body of work that have addressed this cause versus effect distinction, he calls a series of increasingly hostile articles, (laughs) which they really are. Oh, yeah. There's some pretty bold hyperbolic statements. They get at it. That really end up several recent ones of saying there's no justification for using these and these should be abandoned in practice. And we will talk about that in a moment. But he has seven criticisms that cut across the body of work. So here are the seven. With formative indicators, the construct does not exist independently of the indicators. So that an effect indicator is we can believe there's happiness, we can believe there's depression. We believe that it exists on its own, we just can't observe it. Mm -hmm. And a criticism is a causal perspective. That construct doesn't exist without its indicators. That's one. Number two, formative indicators are causes and not measures. Formative indicators imply multidimensionality. Formative indicators are assumed to be error-free. Formative indicators inherently subject to interpretational confounding. Formative indicators fail in proportionality constraints. And formative indicator coefficients should be set in advance and not estimated. So to be clear, these are the seven themes Ken extracted from the criticisms. And then the paper is a work of art because it goes step by step through each of the seven. What is the source of the criticism? Is the criticism well-founded theoretically and empirically? And then for each one, he concludes to varying degrees that it's actually not really a criticism in the way that the literature has set it out. Yeah. Honestly, they lawyer the prior papers really nicely. Like, you use this particular term, but it's used inconsistently, and your attack is based solely on the way you've defined this term, which isn't even an accurate definition. I mean, it's really methodical and thorough and compelling. I mentioned before I was deposed mm-hmm. <laughs> as part of the Supreme Court case for the University of North Carolina because I did data analysis for admissions, and it was like a scene out of a movie. I had a lawyer on each side of me from UNC. There were three lawyers across from me. There was a judge at the end of the table. There was a stenographer at the other end of the table. Uh But he would pull a sheet of paper out of a notebook and say, this is an email that you received on so-and-so. Would you please read this in your own words? And he would slide it across. And my only thought was, Oh, God, please don't let it be from Greg. Please don't let it be from Greg. Please don't let it be from Greg. And I would read it, and then he would say, what do you interpret the word urgent to be? And it went on like this for eight hours. Wow. And what Ken does is is pushing the email across the table and is saying, they said this, they said this, they said this. And Ken's paper, there's no hostility in it at all. Mm-hmm. I think Ken is just giving a fair and measured response to a set of critiques that have been leveled at this approach. And one of the things that Ken really doubles down on is not only definitionally, more broadly speaking, what is a measure? Like, there's literally a disagreement on what makes a measure. Yep. We're at first principles in a way that Plato and Aristotle would admire. (laughs) 
But he draws down three core definitions that we have to consider, and two are most important. He differentiates what he calls causal formative and composite formative. And then there's a third, which are exogenous covariates. And we'll talk about those in a moment when we get to these models. But he clearly defines the difference between causal formative and composite formative. He talks about the different implications of each with respect to the topics that are involved. And then he pulls up how the criticisms are actually mismatched to the definition because some authors are using one definition, some authors are using another definition. And then the hardest point is some authors have some Frankenstein monster of the two. Mm -hmm. And so Ken is telegraphing my dad define your terms because we can't have a principled conversation about this if we're all talking about something different. So you mentioned causal formative and composite formative. That distinction to me feels pretty important. Is it okay if you could just differentiate those for us? Yeah. And I'll do it in thinking of a path diagram. Great. Because actually those are going to play really important role here. Imagine we have five indicators and let's go ahead and say there's socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. The traditional effect indicator has a circle for the latent variables, single-headed arrows emanating away from the latent variable to the indicators, because we are saying that the indicators are effects or results or reflective of the underlying latent factor. Mm -hmm. And it's what all of us are familiar with of the multiple indicator latent factor. All right. A causal formative measurement is we're going to take that path diagram and we're just going to flip the direction of the arrows around. Okay. We're going to let the five items correlate with one another, which we always do because that allows unique prediction, right? It's one above and beyond all the others. So we're going to allow those indicators to correlate with one another. But now the arrows are going to go to the circle, to the latent factor. Mm -hmm. That's what a causal formative model is. Is it in Reduces the latent factor. And this is where people immediately start getting pissy, which is, hey, super great, totally on board. This is amazing. <laughs> that isn't identified. Right. You can't just say there's a latent variable. Now, there's a workaround to that, and we'll get to that in a moment, but that's causal formative. Mm-hmm. Composite formative is very, very similar, but it doesn't induce a latent variable. It induces a weighted composite of those set of indicators. Mm-hmm. And you know what it's a lot like, and you could draw parallels to this is principal components analysis. Is principal components analysis a true latent variable model? No, absolutely not. Is it almost always taught like that, including you and me? Yeah, because they're damn near the same thing when you do it in practice. But in a principal components analysis, we take an optimally linear weighted combination of our observed indicators and compute a manifest composite. Mm -hmm. So that's what a composite formative model looks like. So the issue then becomes, well, which one are you talking about? And he really nicely lays out different scenarios. He writes out the equations, what are deterministic, Mm -hmm. what are probabilistic, what has a residual variance, what does not. But a lot of the confusion in the literature stems from, well, which of those are you talking about? That's one of his big points. But here's where the path diagrams come in most important. 
Okay, so we have five indicators of SES that correlate with one another and have single-headed arrows that point to this latent variable. That by itself is not identified. You cannot estimate that model because nothing indicates the latent variable. That's right. But what you can do is say, well, what if we use that latent factor to predict two distal outcomes? All right, so picture in your mind's eye, we're going to work left to right. We have five indicators that correlate with each other, and we're going to move a step to the right, and there's a circle, all right, that it's inducing that factor. Now we're going to move another step to the right, and from that circle, it predicts two distal outcomes, all right? So maybe that circle is socioeconomic status, and we are going to predict from that school success and problem behavior. Mm -hmm. Okay, you got me? That's very reasonable to say that SES might have a bearing on those things. All right, now, I don't know how many of you out there teach SEM, but it's really fun to mess with kids to do this little thought experiment because this happens (laughs) all the time. All right, is that model A, a causal formative model of SES that in turn predicts school success and problem behavior? Now, grab those two little distal outcomes rotate them 90 degrees up, and holy crap, those distal outcomes now look like a two-indicator latent factor that you're regressing on your set of exogenous predictors. Is it A or is it B? And the answer, of course, is yes. That's right. And to be very clear, there's absolutely nothing wrong with this model from a theoretical standpoint. The cause indicators coming in, at least the way we think about it, the cause indicators coming in to define SES and SES in turn having an influence on these things. But then the question is, when we get to an analysis, how does it know? Right. And that's where you mess with kids in SEM is let's take a step back, not talking about the cause indicators, but just a CFA. All right. So picture in your mind's eye, a multiple indicator latent factor that has 10 items that define an underlying latent variable. Just making up an example, let's say that there are 10 math items and the underlying latent factor is mathability. And then mathability predicts a distal outcome where you retained that year based on end of grade testing. Mm -hmm. So zero, one, were you retained or not retained? And so we wax poetic about we have a multiple indicator, 10 item factor that defines, and again, it goes back to the Monet, right? It defines this (laughs) haystack at sunrise. It's a true and pure latent factor of math ability. Then we're going to use that as a predictor of this distal outcome of did the child meet end of grade expectations or not, yes or no. And then you get the kids really engaged about that. And then you go, do, 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 do. And you pull that distal outcome up and make it 11 indicators on an underlying latent factor. That gamma that was the distal outcome is now in lambda. And you now have 11 item multiple indicator latent factor where the first 10 are how you responded on the math test. And the 11th is whether you were held back or not. And it is the same damn thing. How does it know? Well, it knows because we call it Lambda instead of Gamma. (laughs) Come on, Hancock, try to keep up. I can't carry Uh you this entire way. (laughs) So I'm going to come back to something that we always come back to, and that is the role of theory. When someone goes up to the board and they, as as you will always say, sharpie in, right, with that permanent marker, whatever their variables are, and then we start drawing the model around it, I want that picture to completely represent theory to the best of their ability. And there might be some cause indicators, there might be some outcomes, or whatever the constellation of things is. 
If that model is not identified, here's what I don't tell them. Well, you should never try to model anything like this ever. I would never tell anybody to do that. I'm more inclined to try to think about if you have the theory that's represented the way you want, and then what can we do, right? And what would be the consequences of some of the things that we could do to try to address the thing that's as close to the theory that you believe is possible? And there's a wonderful logical syllogism that Ken has written about for decades. Yep. He has a Bolin and Lennox paper that goes back to 91. Yeah. So this is not like him joining the dance late. He's written about this stuff for 30 years and one way or the other. But Ken lays out a logical syllogism, which is there are some measures that are not effect indicators. They are not resulting from an underlying latent factor. The second step is if we fit an effect indicator model to those items, that is misspecified. Step three is if we are working with a misspecified model, there are both known and unknown ramifications for introducing biases and undermining internal and external validity of the findings. And so it really is Sharpie everything you've got in on the board. And yet again, we've had half a dozen episodes where we've landed on this. This is all a matter of how you connect those. If we make a rectangle for what you have in your data set, your items, what are the single-headed arrows? What are the double-headed arrows? And what are the circles? That's our entire day job. Mm -hmm. How do we connect those things? And so Ken's big takeaway on this minority report one is one is just telegraphing my dad, define your terms. What do you mean by a causal indicator? Is it causal formative? Is it composite formative? Or are you really talking about an optimal linear combination of a set of exogenous covariates that jointly are predicting a latent factor? So one is define your terms. And then the second one is it is not reasonable in the work that we do to just simply say, don't do that, right? So he quotes a thing from Jeff Edwards. Jeff has a paper in 2011 that's really good. And I think the world is Jeff Edwards. He's a colleague of mine across campus in the business school here at Carolina. Mm -hmm. And he's written some really important stuff in organizational research methodology. And he's yep. also a great guy. But Jeff writes, the shortcoming of formative measurement lead to the inexorable conclusion that formative measurement models should be abandoned. All right. And I like doubling down, right? Jeff gets an attaboy for doubling down. But Ken concludes his paper, science does not operate by shutting doors. Censorship of ideas, however novel or controversial, is a dangerous thing and runs against the very nature of academic discourse. So I think Ken's entire paper could be distilled down to define your terms and let's continue working on this. Not here, I'll do a JFK. We choose to go to the moon. Wait, oh, you know what? You got to do it in your JFK voice. I don't have Can't you just do the judge from the McNeish episode? <laughs> Quantitude is an embarrassment to the podcast community, and at best, should have stopped after like the fifth episode. So I think what Ken is peeling off is a JFK kind of quote. I do your JFK. <laughs> this is going to be horrible. I just know that. Come on. You should know this. You're a baby right. boomer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Just do it. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they're easy, but because they are hard. Okay, now <laughs> do it in JFK's voice. <laughs> I told you. I told you it was going to suck. <laughs>
We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So his point is, is don't just not do it because it's hard. We need to build a model that faithfully represents the fidelity of our empirical data and our theoretical models that we believe to exist in the population. And his main walkaway point is we should not be recommending that we just don't do it. We had a prior episode on ideas for dissertations. Holy cow, there's some cool stuff that could be done here. Oh, yeah. Here, let me do my JFK voice. Arg! We don't do it because it's easy. We do it because of the pirate code. All right. That's about as good as yours. Might have been better. <laughs> so then the question is, how do we do the hard thing? Right. To try to keep a fidelity between the analyses that we do and the model that we are firmly theoretically attached to. And we talked previously about one approach to try to deal with these things, and that was PLS. We had an episode last season mm -hmm. about partial least squares, which I think <laughs> you thought was an estimator. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I was willing to admit uh -huh. that for a 20-year career, I thought PLS was an estimator, yeah. which may explain why I do not have a chapter in the handbook uh -huh. of SEM. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so PLS is one approach to getting at it, but there are other approaches as well. And one I would really like us to get into, and this points a little bit at the distinction that you were making between causal formative and composite formative. This is an area called confirmatory composite analysis that starts to open the door a bit to being able to formally integrate composites into our model and being able to do so anywhere those composites might reasonably be, whether it's on an exogenous side of the model or an endogenous side of the model. And I think that would be a really exciting topic for us to dig into a little bit. That's awesome. We will litter the show notes with citations to these papers, and it really is just something of which we should all be aware, even if you're not doing it yourself. You should know the difference at a cocktail party between an effect indicator and a cause indicator and be able to swirl a glass of wine and self-righteously talk about the differences, because that's what we do in academics. Mm -hmm. And also, we can wrap up as just a little bit of another professional development tip, because we try to help the field in general, this is a wonderful question to ask if you forgot to read the document at the final dissertation defense. <laughs> I see that you used an effect indicator approach. Uh -huh. Do you think that is the proper structure for these items or could there be a causal indicator model that actually holds? Tell me a little bit about your thinking on this. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. Well, I would like to talk more about this, but it's running day and I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, habits, habits. All right, thanks, everybody. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to tell your friends to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they go to have the constructs they hold near and dear to their hearts interrogated into existential crisis. You can also follow us on Twix Twitter, where we are at QuantitudePod, and visit our website, quantitudepod.org, where you can leave us a message, find organized playlists and show notes and syllabi, listen to past episodes, and other fun stuff. And finally, as the holidays are bearing down on us yet again, you can get cool Quantitude merch, like shirts, mugs, stickers, and spiral notebooks, from redbubble.com, where all proceeds from non-bootleg authorized merch go to donorschoose.org to help support low-income schools. You've been listening to Quantitude, 
The podcast that you wish had lots of arrows going into it. Really sharp ones. Today's episode has been sponsored by Latent Reflective Formative Composite Emergent Causal Effect Indicators. The measured variables guaranteed to be whatever kind of indicators your theory needs them to be. And by the all-new PATH GPT. Just give it the names of some measured variables, and it will generate the model and results most likely to go unquestioned by reviewers and readers. Data not required. And finally by the generalized Satora Bentler Correction, helping to correct for non-normality in every aspect of life. Is your partner being moody or irrational? Just apply the GSB, and their behavior should be right back within the normal expected range. Warning, may require inverting something that's highly unstable. This is most definitely not... NPR.